Dick LeGates, welcome to the new school. It's nice to be here. So you are a professor emeritus of urban studies and planning at San Francisco State University. And uh, you've done a, a set of uh, different books on uh, urban issues, including a, a very well-regarded book, uh, which I look forward to reading, uh, called The City Reader, um, which uh, is uh, a, from Rutledge uh, Urban Reader series. Uh, and also uh, Thinking Globally, Acting Regionally, GIS, and Data Visualization for Social Science and Public Policy Research, and City Lights, an Introduction to Urban Studies. Um, and one of the Amazon reviews of your City Reader read like this. It said, Legates and Stout do an excellent job of compiling and briefly explaining many seminal writings on cities. There's a lot to read here. Uh, the book is full of informative, interesting, and fun writings. And uh, this is essential reading for students of urban form, architecture, and the social sciences. Includes Le Corbusier, Patrick Geddes, Jane Jacobs, Lewis Mumford, J.B. Jackson, Witold Rybczynski, is that how you pronounce his name? So. More or less, and many others. So you've had a, a, a really wonderful career. Uh, we were speaking over lunch, um, which has included a lot of time wandering around the world looking at cities with an urban planner's perspective. And um, it was such an interesting conversation over lunch. Before we get to China, uh, uh, you mentioned... Um, uh, two new towns outside of Jakarta. And I wondered if you would briefly describe those two new towns. Well, this is not China, but a very interesting yeah. experience. In I the, said before you got In to the China. fall, right. yeah. One of the things that's happening in China as well as Indonesia is uh, themed new towns, sort of fantasy theme park developments. I can describe some of the ones in China as well. But the two outside of Jakarta, Jakarta has 12 million people in the city, another 12 million south of it on the aquifer where the water comes from, where they should be building, another 13 million upstream. So 35 million people in the greater Jakarta area. Um, and it's, there is a wealthy class uh, from exploiting natural resources. So the two, new towns that I visited are both themed. One is themed geographically, so neighborhoods are named Paris, Madrid, Sunset Boulevard, uh, Dane Hogg, whatever. And uh, it's large. Uh, you drive around gated. Each community has fantasy themes, you know, a little Eiffel Tower or a pagoda or uh, uh, I don't know what is representative Sunset Strip. Um, and big houses, 4,000 square foot houses, uh, sort of over the top architecture. Um, so that's where a lot you of the, you said new the rich the sales come. offices. Are, are well, the other one, the other one is themed uh, around great uh, people, the uh -huh. legends, Newtown, uh -huh. uh, Newton, Einstein. Uh, the sales office was a replica, pretty much life size, of the Colosseum. Uh, uh, 
with a life-size fountain from Versailles in front and the Washington neighborhood with three White Houses and a statue of George Washington. So if you've got money, uh, you can buy a house there. Uh, you can't get to Jakarta very reliably, which is not very far away, but because uh, of traffic congestion, it may take two to three hours to go the 20 miles. So that's an extreme case. But there, there are uh, lots of themed new towns, you know, uh, Orange County outside of Beijing, uh, a replica of the Eiffel Tower outside of Hangzhou, uh, seven new towns around Shanghai themed after German and Italian and Spanish with replicas of a cathedral and the Romblas and one thing and another. So there's a lot of that silliness. So our subject, is, as, as you mentioned today, is, is uh, the growth and uh, rise and future of Chinese cities. But I wanted to start with that, that example from uh, uh, Indonesia because it, it struck me in our conversation. Um, and again, before we just sort of framing this, uh, we, were, we were talking a little bit about, I asked you who some of the great figures in, in urban planning were. And you gave us a list that included Lewis Mumford, Peter Hall, Ebenezer Howard, Jane Jacobs, and Patrick Geddes, right? Yes. And one of the things as you reflected on this was how many of them had eccentric biographies. Uh, Patrick Geddes didn't go to college. Lewis Mumford read Geddes, dropped out, and devoted his life to promoting Geddes' work. Uh, Jane Jacobs didn't go to college, I guess. It, it's, it's, just, it's interesting to reflect what kind of person ends up being a visionary at the level of deciding to devote their lives to actually, actually one of the most important questions in the world. If the world is increasingly urban, right, then isn't it phenomenally important that we take a visionary perspective on how to design and build these places so that they're not theme parks, but have some relationship to the vernacular traditions from which people come. Yeah, it is interesting. And, um, you know, I'm a professor emeritus of urban studies and planning, the academic discipline which deals with planning cities. is called urban planning for the most part. Um, most professional planners have a two-year master's degree. Urban studies is a little broader, sort of interdisciplinary social science for the most part. Uh, a lot of undergraduate programs. So there's that disconnect between urban studies, trying to understand uh, all of the dimensions of cities and planning them. And a lot of city planning in the United States where planners don't have much power, really, uh, is pretty dry. You know, you try to figure out land use and um, do transportation studies and figure out how much you want to have of what located where. It's, some of it's very exciting, and some of it's professionally demanding, but it's, um, it's, a, it's a minor profession. Urban studies are the history of cities and the social 
interactions and the way world econ economies work and so on. Uh, very important to understand. And I think a lot of the best thinkers were people who were loved cities and sort of drawn into um, the excitement of what they were and then uh, asked the really important question, what are they for? Why are we doing this? Why are we, what are we building them for rather than the little technical questions of how do we make uh, things work a little bit better? So Jane Jacobs and Lewis Mumford and Patrick Kitty, some of these people were really wonderful thinkers, creative, visionary thinkers. So Dick, there's been this uh, remarkable transformation of China. Uh, 1.3 billion people, one-fifth of the world's population. It's, it's changing very rapidly. And the physical form of Chinese cities is changing. And um, tell us a little bit about how the Chinese are responding to this urban transformation. How does the leadership think about it? And what kinds of experiments are they trying in response to this huge, massive shift. I guess I'm struck with how quickly thinking changes and how quickly changes on the ground follow once thinking changes. You know, we've seen some evolution over the last 30 years in the United States, but nothing like going from a essentially Soviet model of building uh, coal-fired steel plants in the middle of what are cities with uh, seeing them as centers for socialist production with almost no, none of the kinds of functions that we think of as cities to uh, opening up the cities and the coast to global trade and you know, these enormous manufacturing centers to a reaction to overdoing that where you then undo a lot of what you tried to do to uh, probably the thing that people don't appreciate, a, a very rapid increase in environmental consciousness and uh, sort of reaction against, it's all very dialectic. Uh, so that's the most striking change or thing I see. One of you mentioned the, the, the new centers of production for Western technology products and so forth. And you had a slide that was particularly striking to me of this huge corporation called Foxcom, right? Yes, Foxcom. And there were two visual slides. One was of hundreds of people waiting to apply for jobs at Foxcom. And the second was of a dormitory, uh, three or four stories high, internal open space, with suicide nets spread across because of the number of workers that had been jumping from upper stories Buildings to their death. Yeah. 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 Well, yeah, of course, China is industrializing, um, uh, particularly the cities in coastal China, where you have direct foreign investment, increasingly domestic investment, have become the workshop of the world where everything we buy in Target and Walmart and is is made so that there are this an enormous industrial workforce 300 million people in the floating population who are working in some place other than where they have residence status uh, 300 million I mean that's the population of the United States of so 
migrant workers. Um, often in these plants that are very large and very Tayloristic, I think is a word, you know, sort of efficiency driven. Foxconn is the poster child of a um, driven, efficient uh, corporation. It's a Taiwanese multinational that does a lot of the electronic assembly work so that Apple and uh, Microsoft and the, all the Wii's and iPads and iPods and um, I don't remember some of the other products are, are made there in factories that can employ 100,000 people and, you know, six-story, eight-story uh, going on endlessly with lines of people assembling iPhones or whatever. People who work in them are mostly from central or western China. I grew up in a small village. Uh, many of them didn't finish high school. Uh, they're making triple what their parents are making, both parents working hard farming, assembling cell phones. So you have this odd combination of uh, enthusiasm. I think I had images of thousands of people mobbing Foxconn trying to get jobs and wearing I love Foxconn t-shirts given to them by Foxconn uh, at the same time that you have uh, suicide nets and uh, a lot of talk of the security forces. You've had people killed in plant explosions and long hours overtime. You know, there's a lot of uh, Western criticism trying to get Foxconn to reduce overtime. Then you have a reaction from Foxconn workers who would like to work 50, 60 hours a, a week and increase their earnings. So um, that's, that's a complex reality. Foxconn, I think, undoubtedly has this very organized workforce of tedious factory assembly work produces things we like in the West uh, very, very efficiently. I don't think it's as the worst of the Chinese manufacturing corporations. Uh, and it's under a lot of pressure, a lot of scrutiny, so it's probably a little better than some of the worst ones. But it's not, not a place most Americans would want to work. Uh, typically, they live in dormitory rooms. You, know, you have... Uh, right at the plant, a dormitory where there may be six or 12 people in one room with a little cabinet where you keep your clothes and your, your cell phone and your dresses uh, and walk over to a, a shift of work. Sometimes not. Sometimes they live in uh, housing outside of the factory compound and either are bussed in or get in on their own or in some cases, the factories are in the peri-urban areas, and they live in either newly constructed housing or in villages. Now, you're, you are the secretary of the board of the International Association for China Planning, and you've done um, extensive work in one urban area of China. Um, and I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about that work. Let me, let me describe a little bit about Cheng, Chengdu. When I go to China, I spend most of my time in Shanghai or in Beijing, uh, where I've been teaching in urban planning programs in the universities. But this year, I've been spending a lot of time in Chengdu, China. Chengdu is in the southwest, 
So it was not one of the coastal cities that boomed in the first round of industrialization. But it is the capital of Sichuan province. It's probably the main city in southwestern China, so it's not an insignificant place. When I say not an insignificant place, I don't know how many people have heard of Chengdu, but it has, it's twice the size of New York, so it's large. It's in Sichuan, which has a population larger than Germany and a land area larger than Germany. Uh, a lot of the Chinese cities, they're, are met, they're sort of metropolitan areas and include different political subdivisions. So Chengdu has 14.5 million people, area twice the size of Wales, the size of Delaware. Um, it has nine urban districts and then uh, county-level cities, which may have a million people on the periphery, and then counties. So I believe there are 19 political subdivisions in all. Um, and it's sort of catching the boom after the development of the coastal China. Beginning in 2000, the national government began a develop the West campaign and has been promoting development in, in the interior, and Chengdu is a natural place to take advantage of that. So Chengdu is unusual in that they... Uh, to me, I, I'm very positive on Chengdu. For Since 2003, they have been working on what they call coordinated urban-rural development, uh, trying particularly to improve the quality of life uh, of the rural parts of the metropolitan area uh, with a whole series of reforms which are very progressive, shifting a lot of money from the center into the rural areas. They're uh, reforming not property rights, but use rights in rural land in ways that benefits farmers. Um, there are a lot of new industrial development and work. Uh, they've abolished the hukou system for people who are residents of Chengdu, not necessarily migrants from other parts of the country. Hukou so being household registration. Household registration, so that Anyone uh, in Chengdu can move from the rural to the urban areas. They, their social security and health benefits are not dependent on where they live. Um, they have the rural residents who have historically have been discriminated against have all of the rights of urban residents. There's and lots so more how do they How do they see you? Did they invite you in? What role have they asked you to play? I... I'm attractive to them because I speak English. I know about uh, the world outside of Chengdu. And I am interested enough to pay attention, have been paying attention to China for some time. I was invited in under the, with really with the dean of the Department of Urban Planning and Management at Renmin University in Beijing, has close connections with them and they has done a lot of they've done a lot of research. They wanted to have an English language book to promote uh, themselves and their leaders, and wanted it to have a, some detachment and scholarly cast. So that's how I happened to be there. It's been great for me. I mm -hmm. have learned a lot and working with the Chinese professors and being shown things by them. But in in Chengdu specifically. 
did they ask you to come in and help them in some way or review things or contribute? How do they see your role? I'm part of a research group of five Chinese professors and myself writing a book about Chengdu's Coordinated Urban Rural Development Program. Mm -hmm. um, so I'm not giving them advice. Um, the Chinese-speaking Chinese scholars are gathering a lot of the information. I'm putting it in context and getting the final book into good, readable English. You wrote a, a, a very interesting article um, called Vision, Scale, Tempo, and Form in China's Emerging City Regions. And um, so uh, perhaps start by giving us a definition of those terms, vision, scale, tempo, and form. What are you talking about? So this is a scholarly article presented at a conference in Guangzhou about a year ago. Um, where by visions, I, there, there are the in Western urban planning, as, as you mentioned at the beginning of the talk, there are visionaries who have different models of what, how cities should be organized. Um, the Chinese are aware of them, uh, at least the names. They may misunderstand them. And so I was interested in terms of visions, of identifying some of the classic Western visions and then thinking about uh, do they or don't they apply to China or how might they be adapted. So, for example, Ebenezer Howard, Garden Cities of Tomorrow, a book written a little over 100 years ago, envisaged rather than London sprawling outward, there should be compact cities of 32,000 people with a 5,000-acre green belt around them. Or Le Corbusier was in favor of modernist visions sweeping away. He would have torn down the whole left bank of Paris and replaced it with three million people in 16-story uh, glass and steel buildings with high-speed interconnections and so on. So um, I, I, I talked about garden cities and modernism and linear cities and uh, Frank Lloyd Wright wrote about Broad Acre City, where you try to have the automobile liberate people by allowing them to get out into suburbs. Um, in China, some of the visions make sense. Chengdu calls itself a global, modern garden city. As of 2009, they decided this is what they are. I'm not sure that they read Ebenezer Howard, but uh, that's part of the inspiration. Um, when I, in, in Shanghai, one side of the river was old warehouses, undeveloped, 50, 20 years ago. Now is, again, as big as New York, a new modern center. And when I go up to the top of the building and look down, it looks like the diagrams in Le Corbusier's City of City of Tomorrow, you know, written 80 years ago. Great big towers surrounded by parks. Very Le Corbusian. Uh, but are uh, those cities in reality truly livable? 
You know, I, I think two things. First, uh, Chengdu has wonderful, their strategy, I, th I think, is a wonderful strategy. They, they have four and a half million people in, living in rural, peri-urban area. Uh -huh. Many of them lived in what are called Linpan villages. These were, either they lived in individual farmhouses in fields or in villages with 50, 100, 200, 500 people with attached walls and a little bit of common space. Uh, unlike many cities demolishing the countryside and demolishing the city, moving people into 16-story, gray, ugly high-rises, uh, Chengdu has has built or rehabilitated 1,600 villages in the last 10 years, nine years. Um, they tend to have a few hundred people, um, attached walls, they're more concentrated than the previous villages, and very attractive buildings, you know, people moving out of old farmhouses with dirt floors and roofs that leaked into cute little new villages surrounded effectively by a green belt. They're a lot like a garden city. Uh, how do their transportation systems work? Well, of course, China is a big place and different places, different, different cities, different places. But a couple of things. First, uh, the bullet train system seems to me amazing that they have, I believe, 41 lines up with several thousand miles of bullet trains, like the Japanese or European bullet trains. So you can go from Shanghai to Beijing in four and a half hours on working on your laptop in this very modern bullet train. And they're extending them at a tremendous rate. So, and, and airports, sort of big transportation, and highways, everything and subway systems that are being built. The Shanghai subway system is bigger than London's now, and it was pretty small five years ago before their World's Fair. Uh, so uh, in Shanghai, you get around much more easily than in New York, and the subway system is comparable to London or Paris, only it's modern. Uh, they also have a transit hub, so you can get from the international airport to uh, a domestic airport with subway and bullet train connections. You know, trying to build that, build anything in the United States takes you 20 years of environmental impact statements and political debate. Uh, China makes mistakes, but they sort of build these things very quickly. So it seems to me the bullet train system, the subway systems, uh, and on a more routine level, just improving uh, roads and uh, bus systems. Chengdu, all these little villages, you can get around by bus on paved roads where you couldn't 10 years ago. So they're making huge changes. Now you mentioned China makes mistakes, and in previous conversations you told me about whole cities that they've built that are, hmm. that are vacant, basically. Ghost cities uh -huh. and ghost malls, you know, the, uh, the enthusiasm to build something, they will sometimes build things that don't have a market or they've got a speculative market but not a real market. So 
Give us an example of a ghost. Well, I drove out to a new town named Anting New Town, which is next to the largest Volkswagen plant in China, outside of Shanghai. It's one of nine themed new towns. It's German-themed. Go out and it looks like you're in Bavaria. Um, All built within, I believe the last six years, something like that, just very quickly. Um, And uh, housing for 25,000 people, including mansions and a golf course and a marina, as well as very attractive townhouses, downtown and so on. So uh, there it is. It's all new. And uh, we drove to the sales office and they asked how things were doing. It's all sold. Every, Every unit sold. And he said, where are the people? And the answer is, they're in Shanghai investing. So it's uh, almost empty, quite nice new city. And there are others. South China Mall is this huge mall, which was built in the wrong place. I believe it's the largest mall in the world by some measures and almost empty. Mm-hmm. Um, so you get... Uh, market distortions as you move from a planned economy to a market economy. Chinese now call it sort of market socialism. Uh, um, when I read about uh, China today, I'm, and I'm checking this with you, I'm, I'm struck by the descriptions of the, the hopefulness and the sense of forward movement of many of the younger people in China. Is that true? You know, that's, that's, that's very dramatic to me. Now, again, there are younger people and younger people. Uh, I've tended to be at a, elite urban universities where to get into Tongji or Renmin University, very, very competitive, Something on the order of one in 8,000 people will get in from some of the provinces. Um, Speaking English is a criterion, so every year the quality of the English spoken is better, so that all the undergraduates at Tongji speak good English, and they're very aware of Western scholarship. And uh, they know they will have multiple job offers as soon as they're done, if they're studying urban planning, which is in demand in China. They know that they'll have research projects in the summer and uh, that they are a privileged elite. So they have this tremendous feeling of optimism. But I, th- I think it's true all the way down. Even the, the, the young women dropping out of high school to assemble cell phones feel that the quality of their life in three years, five years, will be like nothing they've ever experienced. They're going to have adventures and see the world and uh, have money and have things. You had a slide of, I think it was something called the Mouse Mouse Tribe. Tell us about the Mouse Tribe. Well, uh, the Mouse Tribe are... Cellar dwellers in Beijing, so-called. Um, there are a lot of um, rooms with no no windows, a single basement room, which are occupied. You know, Beijing has about 23 million people, 
500,000 new, almost the population of San Francisco moving in every year. Um, so there's a housing shortage, and uh, this is a term, the mouse, the mouse tribe uh, are the basement dwellers, which is like New York City. At the, you know, 100 years ago, there was an anti, uh, the housing movement was focused on trying to eliminate uh, certain kinds of tenement housing, but also basement dwellers, where East Europeans were living four to the room and so on. You've got the mouse tribe and you've got ant colonies. So I went out to an ant colony in Beijing near Renmin University where a rural land is collectively owned. Urban land is owned by the municipality. No land is privately owned. So use rights gets, things get a little complicated. So within cities, you have enclaves of agricultural land which are owned collectively by farmers' collectives. I haven't farmed for a long time. So this little enclave of farmland was engulfed by Beijing. Um, people may have farmed for a little bit, and they decided that having a duck uh, product factory was more lucrative. They built a factory then they realized that if they stopped canning duck products and just divided the whole factory with, uh, uh, what do you call that board you put up? Uh, fiber board? Fiber, not, yeah. That's the right idea. Yeah. Pardon? No. Let's, part, let's call it particle board. You divided this room up instead of having one room where you assembled duck products you just walled it off into six rooms where you had bunk beds. Um, you could six, six or 12 people, you could rent it out for more than you could make with duck products or farming. Mm -hmm. So you have this uh, ant colony. Most of the people are either uh, graduates of inferior schools who are working in work which they're not trained to do or students at um, inferior educational institutions in Beijing. Uh, you know, I can pay $35 a month for a bed, cheap, uh, and just, just a bed in a room. With, uh, so those, those are the ants, the ant colonies. And, uh, so... The Chang mouse tribe and the ant colonies. So Chengdu is... You've given us the size of Delaware, you know, uh, just huge scale. How many other cities in China at about that scale exist? I mean, what's, what's the order of magnitude well, of it? You know, the urban planners talk about mega cities. Right. Uh, disagree what constitutes one, but... Uh, this would be a mega city. Chengdu would be a mega city. Right. Um, the... United Nations, I think, sets 10 million people as the lower bound for a mega city. Uh, Beijing and Shanghai and Chengdu, uh, probably Guangzhou, are the the mega cities. And then, what's the next order of magnitude? Well, down from that? you know, people tend to think of China having these enormous cities, which are growing very fast. 
but it's, it's really more complex. You have mega cities, but you have large, medium, small, and then towns and villages and sub-villages and so on. You have a whole continuum. Um, generally, the urbanization is proceeding throughout the country where people are leaving the countryside, the villages, and moving into uh, what can be medium and small-sized cities of half a million to a million people or into towns of 20,000 rather than villages of a few hundred. So it seems to me there's urbanization is happening at every level. And in the big regions, in the Pearl River Delta near Hong Kong or the Yangtze River Delta near Shanghai, uh, they, there are plans to plan the entire regions as a functional unit. So there's some, probably at this point a little bit over the top, discussion of the Pearl River Delta becoming essentially a city of 60 million people where you can move around by high-speed train, everything is connected. And uh, unlike the United States, where urban planning is sort of physical planning of where things go, the Chinese are not shy about saying planning is economic, social, physical, will move people from one class to another, from one work status to another. You don't have uh, people saying that you're inciting class warfare if you want to tax people with over $250,000, a little bit more. Mm -hmm. uh, so you, you have conscious uh, polycentric networks of cities planned where we'll shift all of the banking from one place to another, all of the um, innovative, uh, energy-efficient uh, vehicle design. Just we can do it better if we consolidate it where these very heavy top-down decisions made will just reorganize in a way you so don't see. Are they getting better at this process of urban planning and making fewer mistakes, or is it, is it something where, in other words, what's the, yeah. the error rate in relationship to the scope and size of the increasing planning effort? Well, you know, um, I go to Tongji University, Tongji was started by uh, German professors about a hundred, a little more than a hundred years ago. Very fine university in the European tradition with engineers and architects, sort of proto-urban planning before the war with Japan and the Civil War and the Cultural Revolution and so on. Uh, during the Cultural Revolution, Tongji was essentially closed, it was sort of a center for uh, political rallies. The European and American trained professors were sent to the countryside to be re-educated. Um, the first class of anyone studying urban planning for 10 years, really studying anything, uh, graduated in 1980. There were 20 urban planners graduated in China. Um, so from zero to now there are more planners in China than there are in the United States and the European Union combined. Uh, and 
200 urban planning schools, and the size and the quality has grows exponentially. So many are poor quality. They tend to be architectural and engineering rather than more holistic. Uh, 20, they have a whole accrediting and credentialing system where the top 25 are accredited and are pretty good, and the top ones are, are, are very good. You know, Tong, Tongji has 50 faculty members. Almost all have been educated in the West or have spent time six months or a year or two years in MIT and Harvard and the University of Berlin and wherever, the Bauhaus. They're very, they speak English. They're very aware of what's going on. It's a and center of people. Among the elite of city planners who will end up with the lion's share of the power in city planning in China, is there a shared culture and conceptual framework or is there a wide variety of competing perspectives on how this should be done? You know, here's my sense. Again, this can be a long, longer discussion right. that probably is good for this group, but... Um, most of the urban planning programs are located within schools of architecture and planning, and the tradition is design-oriented. They're very good at design uh, compared to my San Francisco State students. The Tongji students can use AutoCAD and design things that our students can't. Why can't your students? Because we don't teach it. should. Architects, architects do that. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. and some plan, most graduate planning programs have good urban design programs. Mm -hmm. But uh, the undergraduate uh, planning students and the design-oriented programs are very good with software and modern design, at least in the good schools. And they go to school. In the United States, you go for two years as a graduate program to become a planner. It's five years as an undergraduate, and then two years, two and a half years as a graduate. So many of the graduating planners have eight years. They're very good in technical skills, but they don't know much about economics or political science or haven't thought about social questions very much. And they do more at Tongji than at other places. Renmin is within the School of Public Administration, and they are mostly land economists and public administrators. They, there's some designers and some design, but they teach a lot of policy and economics. And there are some programs that are connected with geography, which are more like regional planning programs in the United States. So it, it varies. So I think there are different orientations and different levels of ability. But think about, you know, a city of... 23 million people in Shanghai, even if you're graduating 100 planners, you can suck them up into interesting work and still have big demand. So how high does the urban planning interest go in the Chinese political structure? In other words, obviously economic planning has a huge level of clout in China. Yeah. Uh, is the top leadership aware of and convinced of the importance of urban planning? Is there a drive from the Politburo or whatever it's called on down to do this right? Or does this develop at, the, at a more regional level? Of course, I, yeah, the national leadership is more involved in 
planning of all kinds, as you said, right. that often means economic or sectoral right. planning. But the sectoral plans are coordinated spatially. And uh, there are a variety of institutions, the Ministry of Land Resources Management and the National Commission for Reform and Development under the State Council and the Politburo, all are making plans in a way that's very unlike uh, what the American governments do. We don't, other than when we're bailing out the auto industry or sort of extreme cases, we don't say we've got to do something about steel or we've got to do something about uh, right. whatever. It's spatial as well as sectoral planning, and that comes down to the provincial and the municipal and the sub-municipal levels. When we were talking about, um, over lunch, we were talking about, I said, asked you, what is the best city in the world from a planning point of view? And you immediately said, Singapore. You said it's run by one guy. <laughs> He's very smart. And, uh, you know, and, you know, it works really well. And you said the, the housing is a, a fractal of the population as a whole, that every building, uh, the apartments are broken up into Chinese, Malay, and Indian in accordance with the population of the city as a whole. So you'll have whatever percent Chinese, whatever percent Malay, whatever percent Indian. And then you mentioned your regard for Shanghai at a pretty high level. Um, and um, But then I asked you uh, what the urban level was in the United States and the European Union. And it surprised me. You said it was like a high 80s to low 90s as a percent of the population. Percent of the population, yeah. So what, as a total neophyte to this, what struck me is if, city, if, if where we live deeply affects and reflects our consciousness, and if we are becoming, as we well know we are, a, not just a country but a world, an urban world, right? And therefore, you know, what could be really more important? Or how, how many things rise to the level of importance of the design of the cities in which we live and have both individual and collective consciousness? And, and so... I guess the question I'm so well before I ask that question, then I said to you, "What are your criteria for a good city?" And you began to list uh, efficiency, equity, aesthetics, economy, environment, transportation, things like that. So, where is the most visionary, deep thinking about urban planning and? Um, kind of the future of uh, the earth and the species. Where is it taking place? Where is the dynamic center of uh, thinking about how we live together in urban, urban settings? I could score some points with my colleagues in Chengdu by saying Chengdu, but probably that's <laughs> stretching a bit. It, 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 it seems to me that there... There always are cities which are exemplar leading cities. Mm -hmm. You know, many people would 
say, oh, Curitiba, Brazil, this visionary city which um, invented a whole series of things, bus rapid transit systems that really are very efficient and work. And the mayor is Jamie Lerner, or was? Jaime Lerner, yeah. yeah right. uh, Not a relative, but... <laughs> uh, Mazdar City, outside of Abu Dhabi, is mm -hmm. being built as a zero carbon, zero, we uh, zero waste, uh, high-tech, uh, innovative city of the mm -hmm. future by Norman Foster, a great British designer. And you go back in time, there are other sort of exemplary cities that people look to, um, you know, there's no, if there was a, a right way to do it, then everybody would do that, and I'd be out of work. Uh, so, uh, those are some examples. Okay, those are cities, but I guess my question is, are there thinkers or planners, is there a place where if you want to be exposed to the best thinking and most powerful visionary energy around this issue that you either want to go or visit or something. Is there a, is there a center of remarkable work in urban planning or are there a series of them or is it just too disseminated to respond? Yeah, I, think, I think that my previous answer that there are these places that people will troop to to learn from. Mm -hmm. You know, certainly it was Letchworth, England during the Garden Cities movement and people go to Reston, Virginia, or they go to uh, the Quincy Market in Boston to learn how to do new towns or to do sort okay. of uh, renew downtowns or they'll go to Mazdar City to learn how to be zero carbon or whatever. Um, I don't think there's a one place or one, they're, they're schools, you know, they're, they're the new urbanists and they're the there were the modernists and the Garden City people and the design with nature people, McCargie, and there are lots of different um, schools of thought. How would you describe yourself among those uh, schools? Well, you know, I, I don't know. I, I, I think I, I've been a kind of a synthesizer and uh, uh, promoter of other, uh, a broad vision of urban planning involving uh, social science and policy and design approaches that rather than anything that's particularly original or a particular line that I have. Uh, I think that's my uh, particular niche. So I don't know, I sort of a eclectic. Mm -hmm. If you were to imagine uh, the future of Chinese cities over the next 10, 20, 30 years. Uh, what do you think it's going to look like? You know, that's, that's a very important question. You know, just a little factual stuff. Exactly how urban China was and is uh, is a messy, complicated question. But let's say 18% at the time of the founding of the People's Republic of China. 1949 is probably a reasonable estimate. Uh, the official statistic is that it's essentially 50% urban now, so from 18% to 50% in 60 years. That's a, that's a very fast trajectory, and uh, probably 70% 
in another 20 years. So, well, if you see, the, the, this gets, what is urban is how, how dense and how large it has to be and whether somebody whose residence address is there but they're really not there counts and so on. Get, get into these very messy questions. But, uh, so I'm cautiously saying 18% in 1949, 50% now, um, 70% in uh, 2032. Isn't the world about 50% now? The world is about 50% mm -hmm. um, now. So China is urbanizing rapidly and will continue to urbanize. So we'll, we will have more megacities, larger cities of some of the cities that already exist, probably an increase in the size of many of the large, medium, small cities and towns and continuing depopulation of the countryside. Then a big question is the extent to which the peri-urban areas, the rural areas around cities, will be incorporated into cities, which is really what the Chengdu research is about. What about the well-known environmental issues in Chinese cities? I, because we do a lot of work with cancer yeah. here, I'm very aware of the cancer villages in China where vast proportion of the population ends up with cancer and other illnesses. Uh, what, what is your sense of, of how aware, you mentioned that the Chinese are increasingly aware of environmental problems, but do you have any confidence that they can do any significant amount about them, given the other constraints? Well, a couple of things. I think a number of people in the room have visited China, and probably everyone to a large city was struck by the poor air quality. It's one of the most obvious and visible things. Beijing has so-called blue sky days that they celebrate and they count the number of them. I took a picture pointing straight up last time I was in Beijing to prove that they actually do sometimes. But many of the days they, they have uh, orange-brown sky days. Same is true of Beijing and it's worse in areas in the north where there are more coal-fired plants and so on. So air pollution is terrible, water pollution is terrible dumping of industrial waste in the land is terrible. Um, you know, the number of people uh, getting uh, lung cancer in particular and other forms of cancer, uh, very, very large. So they've, they, they've had a terrible record on uh, pollution for many years. That's because, you know, drive to modernize beyond anything else. Deng Xiaoping, let's stop, you know, the political infighting during the Cultural Revolution get on with industrializing and building uh, as cheaply and as quickly and as, with as little concern to the environment as possible. Um, so I, Chinese are very aware that they have a lot of pollution and that they are bad actors in many ways. They're doing a lot to change that. Uh, the, but still, the criteria by which cadres are advanced have to do with meeting production targets. Mm -hmm. And if 
you want to clean up a brownfield or make air quality better or something, but you won't get promoted if you don't get your iPads built, uh, then that takes precedence. So I think things will get better in China quickly. Again, things tend to happen quickly, and there the leadership is conscious, and they are doing a lot of things on a mega scale. You know, the much of the wind and solar technology in the world is produced in China. They do it better and cheaper. A lot of the market for power in the next 20 years will be in China. And so at a deep level, I think that will make a large difference. On They're the spending solar a lot side. cleaning cleaning up things as well. On the solar side, I read, I think in the Wall Street Journal, that um, they're facing a huge crisis in terms of the number of firms that invested in making solar panels, and it turns out that they can't begin to support that number of firms and that some large proportion of them are going to have to go under. So it, again, it's these, um, uh, and of course in the United States, the solar firms have not been able to compete with the Chinese and, you know, this all these different factors going on. Uh, you know, the, the fracking revolution on natural gas has driven the price of natural gas down so far that solar is less competitive, even despite the flooding of the American market with Chinese solar products. So it's a very complicated story. Um, it, it will be fascinating to watch uh, just whether the Chinese model of uh, uh, concentrated political power in a governing party while trying to, you know, create a market but controlled economy and at the same time tr trying to control in some broad sense uh, urban and rural development. The, 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 the particular mix of culture, economics, planning, and market-based economy in China, are you optimistic that 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 is one of the better models around in the developing world in terms of that mix and China's future? You know, it, I guess my feeling is that uh, there's this tremendous energy and drive and innovation in which tremendous mistakes are made and course corrections are made that just feels very different than, the, than, than in the United States. Um, you know, um, sorry, what, what was the? Well, I, I, was just, I, the, the the core question was whether the particular oh, mix, the model mix yeah. is you know compared to India, compared yeah. to other developing parts of the world. Um, how does that mix look to you in terms of the likelihood of success? Well, again, I don't know anything more than what the. The numbers are, for China has had double-digit growth in GDP for almost 30 years. You know, we're in a good year before the global economic crisis, the United States would, GDP would grow 4% or 4.5%. So, and a 9, 8%, 9%, 10%, 12% year after year just is a huge uh, Accomplishment. There's nothing, nothing like it has happened in world history. So they've certainly the driving the economy forward. 
they made, they made tremendous mistakes. And after Deng Xiaoping opened up industri- you know, these industrial zones in the south, uh, then they opened more. Then the provinces opened. Then the municipalities opened. By the mid-1990s, uh, starting in roughly 1980, in a period of 18 years, there was more land set aside for industrial zones in China than all the urban land in China. Um, and you have these spectacular successes. Shenzhen had 21,000 people in a fishing village, and it's now something like 14 million people in the greater Shenzhen area with these factories of tens and hundreds of thousands of people. So they're producing stuff. And then you have spectacular mistakes where some enthusiastic municipality would build a zone to do something where it didn't make any sense or invest in ways where there wasn't a market. Uh, So there's a lot of mopping up that happens. So that seems very different than doing nothing where the economy can't move or uh, the government is so corrupt uh, that uh, the amount of money that goes into payola drags down the economy uh, or uh, fluctuates. You know, in Indonesia, when they uh, depreciated the rupiah during the Asian financial crisis, the value of Indonesian currency dropped to something like 12% of what it had been six months earlier. If you imagine borrowing money in dollars that you have to pay back within three years and then suddenly your rupiah are worth 12%. You have these violent fluctuations in developing countries. So I don't know what will happen in China. I think no one does, including the Chinese. But uh, they've, they've had a long string of success with lots of missteps and corrections. And uh, the energy is certainly there. We'll stay tuned and we'll have another podcast in 10 years. Well, I'd like to begin to bring this to a close. Uh, just a couple of reflections I've been sitting with um, on a variety of pieces related to this, Dick. The first is um, the growth of uh, robotics as a manufacturing technique. Um, so uh, uh, Bill Joy, the great sci- uh, computer scientist, wrote a remarkable essay called The Future Doesn't Need Us mm-hmm. about how, uh, uh, about how um, genetic GMO science and nanotech and robotics were changing the future. And, and obviously, GMOs, genetically modified organisms, already have done that. But he foresaw correctly that nanotech was going to follow GMOs and robotics was going to follow nanotech. And so what, as you well know, robotics means is that a lot of these factories are becoming capable of manufacturing vast amounts of stuff with almost no workers. And so that is, go- and, and there's a tremendous amount of interest in robotics taking place in China. And I think it was the head of Foxcom or somebody who was talking about how wonderful robotics was because managing these hundreds of thousands of workers was a real trial. And so how wonderful it would be to be able to create all their products with almost no workers. So, But one of the consequences of that, aside from potentially creating massive unemployment 
in China is the potential to move manufacturing back to the United States uh, because you no longer have the need for low-income, uh, you know, low, uh, low-salaried workers in order to make stuff. And so, you know, one of the many disruptive technologies that we're facing is what robotics is going to mean for the whole Chinese economic model and the placement of offshore manufacturing uh, in Asia as in the developing world as opposed to the developed world. So that was one, one point. And a second point is, you know, it's fascinating when you look at future studies how almost invariably we're wrong about what the future is actually going to look like. I mean, it's just almost a rule of thumb that we can't get it right. And so, you know, we have, you know, if you look at the current projections, China overtakes the United States as the world's leading economy and the world's leading power uh, by 2050. And, you know, the whole world begins to center around that. And the United States has been the hegemon for too long already. And the currency is already beginning to fall. So the question has been, will China have the potential to become the next global hegemon? And so there's that whole question related to the Chinese economic and uh, political model. But then I think about things like, you know, there's been quite a while since we've had a really lethal uh, pandemic. And a lethal pandemic uh, would change the entire global situation. I mean, it, you know, just imagine that something comes through that wipes out 60, 80 percent of populations in different countries, particularly crowded countries. So our incapacity to know where all this is going is stunning. And, um, and I don't know whether that's a good thing or a bad thing that we can't tell, but it surely is a true thing. Let me open it up to questions. So are the people who uh, make big mistakes punished, or is are, or are mistakes sort of an accepted part of the growth of the system, and they just shrug it off and move on? I think there's a combination, you know, that... Um, the, the guy who ran the bullet train system after the two trains coll- collided is out of a job. I don't know whether he's in jail or not, but there are consequences to um, mistakes, which are generally called c- corruption, which probably is true. Uh, sometimes sometimes it's that you made a mistake. Um, there is an awful lot of performance evaluation where people's promotion within the system depends on demonstrated meeting of targets of one kind and another. Um, The reason I ask is because in the United States it seems to me that the typical bureaucracy seeks to avoid mistakes at whatever cost. Mm -hmm. And so we really don't get very much done in the way of industrial or social policy experimentation because no one wants to take the risk. So I'm amazed that you have seem to have a society that's willing to take huge risks and 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 try enormous things that have never been done before. That's a really interesting point. That is a interesting. Tom has a question, and I'll make one more comment to that. Oh, this may, may help. I mean, to what extent is the elitist-driven 
uh, ability to make to do planning and make uh, things happen really fast. Uh, a China-specific uh, result of its long cultural history of mandarins coming to Beijing, uh, who are the elite, who make the decisions and who are trained for it, go to the elite right. schools pass elitist examinations, etc. It, it, this seems very unique to to China, even though it's very successful, can be successful there. That's very an interesting comment. I think there's this long tradition of very heavy top-down leadership and acceptance of things. To some level, there's a lot of resistance in China and anger at the government, and very visible, particularly over taking of land, agricultural land, for development. And is, is there any uh, movement for a kind of bottom-up approach to city planning? Well, what an know, interesting question. That's a great question, yeah. and I'm glad you said it, because one of the things that Chengdu it prides itself <coughs> on is rebuilding sort of grassroots democratic institutions and the reason they did it was they wanted to clarify not ownership but use rights in agricultural land. And the government made probably the correct calculation that if they tried to do it from the top, somebody from the Chengdu municipal government went down to Huming village and said this land which people have farmed in different ways, we're going to draw boundaries and say who gets to use which. That would create so much confusion and unhappiness that whatever they did would fail and be kicked out. So they really set up a system where they reformed the local village government institutions to make them work better, then assigned the task of clarifying use rights in agricultural land to the uh, village uh, councils, uh, and then they again they say they they have mapped, surveyed, and mapped and registered and give out, given out use right certificates to five million parcels of rural land in this very protracted, often conflictual bottoms up grassroots um, process. So they. They're very proud of that, and they talk about it. And uh, I've talked to a lot of people in villages who, uh, you know, say say that's what did happen. I'm this outsider, so it's a little hard to tell. Is it a surf, surf sort of a serfdom system, or who who owns that land that's been parceled out to these people? Uh, the the in a jurisprudence, the state owns all land in China, but rural land is owned by collectives. After the revolution, Mao Zedong gave land to the people who were farming it, to the tillers, you know, soil to the tillers program. But within six years, uh, that was changed, collectivizing it on the Soviet model. So people no longer had ownership rights to parcels that they farm. They're regrouped into collectives. So the collectives own the rural farming land, but again, after Deng Xiaoping then instituted what's called the household responsibility system, where once a 
farmer meets state quotas, effectively tax, agricultural tax, then they keep whatever profits there are. And the collectives then work to, to uh, maximize their profits. So it's use, use rights to the land that is collectively owned that theoretically belongs to the state. So there must be some tremendous abuse of the land itself to produce this uh, amount of product so that they earn that amount of money. I don't know. You sort of just bad, 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 bad uh, wearing out of soil or... That's what I mean. Yeah, I don't know. Chengdu is in a fertile plain where they've been farming for several millennia. And I, don't, I didn't hear concern about... Uh, wearing out the soil soil division. Mean, yeah, I know it's a good question. Madeline has. I was just going to weigh in. Um, the traditional Chinese way of farming that preceding the modern age, I mean, the rice farming was one of the most sustainable systems on mm -hmm. earth. Yes. Uh, the way that the old farms used to operate. Now, the new farms, I don't know in terms of chemicals, but they did an yeah. incredible amounts of recycling of... Uh, of, of everything, really. So, but I, I had a question for you. And that can was, I just, I want to hear your question, but just, I'll just comment one more thing. Everywhere in China, and including in Chengdu, modernizing agriculture by trying to, to, to get larger parcels and putting in uh, really agribusiness and sort of modern management is in, in vogue. So that uh, in a lot of these villages, once use rights are clarified, then the village will lease either all of the agricultural land or most of it with holdouts to a corporation from Shanghai with foreign capital bring in scientists and tractors and they brand it and they market it throughout China. A lot of it is shifting into organic farming. And, uh, Isn't that fascinating? Yeah. <laughs> but I mean, it's shifting to organic in this large corporate model, right? Yeah. Yeah. I don't think it's much as for export. I don't. It's, but uh, you know, f food safety is a concern in China. People eat contaminated yeah. food, so supermarkets. If you get something that's wrapped in cellophane and uh, branded, and there is a branding bureaucracy that certifies organic uh, and uh, I think the the small-scale farmers can't do it because there isn't a market locally for expensive organic food so it's paradoxically it's the agribusiness that is improving uh, farming Fascinating. other questions comments oh, Madeline had a question just wondering, what is it that you, I mean, this, this rural-urban linkage that's going on in Chengdu sounds oh. very interesting. So what is it that's special? Oh, good. I sell one copy of the book at yeah. least. <laughs> but, but, so, so what is it that, you, in, your, in your opinion, is special about Chengdu? Why is, where, why are these people? Yeah, this is, so again, one of the other fascinating things to me is the way China operates is either you have a locality that invents something interesting or the leadership wants 
the world to believe that something that they want done has been invented by somebody. And you get a model uh, in, under Mao with self-sufficient communities of one kind or another that would, you know, heroic oil workers would produce oil and at the same time feed themselves and everybody should learn from Da Qing. Um, so in 2002, the state council issued a policy statement that uh, urban and rural development should be better coordinated. Various cities hopped on that with various degrees of seriousness. Chengdu took it more seriously than others. So that uh, they were then designated a model pilot region for coordinated urban-rural development in 2007 and uh, encouraged and people were learn, encouraged to learn from Chengdu. So Chengdu and Chongqing are two model pilot regions for coordinated urban-rural development from whom others are expected to learn. Yes. Do they have any kind of a local war sense that the rural areas are producing food for the city that's there, or is it all to be shipped around? I'm sure most of it is consumed locally, either by the producers or very close to where it's produced. But, uh, you know, the, the idea is, again, I. The development economists that I talk to in China talk about uh, surplus rural labor and changing labor as a factor of production, that you want to shift from the rural labor surplus into get them into urban labor. You can do all of the farming with many fewer people. Uh, and that's, that's uh, there, are a lot, there are a lot of other Western economists who argue the same thing, that as you modernize, you have to shift the uh, agricultural labor force into Cheryl and urban. James have questions. Cheryl? Yeah, any planning for climate change, given that most urban areas are looking at coastlines? Uh, they're very aware of zero carbon, carbon reduction things, and uh, like the United States, there are uh, bold statements and experiments and efforts going on um, to... But, but are there any plans to do any kind of adaptation given rising sea levels? Rising sea levels, I'm sure the... ways away yeah, from coastlines yeah. and so you make sure yeah. part of the market... I, like I'm, I'm sure the answer is yes, that there would be climatologists and planners and others who are doing the same kinds of things that are being done here of mapping the impact of sea level rise and planning for building, uh, I don't know, barriers and so on. But I, I'm not really part, party to that, haven't mm -hmm. been much involved with it. James? Uh, two things. One, I'm just curious, um, mentioning that they're in the planning that they're aware of Western uh, experiments and what didn't go well. And it's interesting, that's understandable they're going to an industrial agricultural policy when we've already discovered that family farms are much more productive and given there's going to be, 
we're heading into a real challenge about how do we feed 8 billion people. And so I was, you know, China has this possibility, while it still has some capacity on the small scale to grow that. So it's interesting about that. But what I'm curious about is because there's still an intergenerational, because of the, the rate of development, there's still a pretty strong intergenerational household unit in the rural parts. Yeah. And I'm wondering, in the urban planning, is there any thought about that? Because I know a lot of people just leave the city like throughout Asia. They, the young people leave yeah. and they leave the parents behind. Yeah. But that will, that will last for one generation. And then the, the, the grandmothers and the grandfathers are going to be in the city yeah. with them. Mm. Is there any thought about like are they are they going beyond the single family unit and thinking about that those kind of issues? That's a very 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 good question, uh, and the the word is ho hollowed out or hollow core villages. You know, in central and western China, where uh, everybody under the age of thirty five has left to make money on the coast. So you have. Uh, grandparents raising children and the elderly and the infirm left over um, uh, and people will come back for the New Year's holiday for a month the rest of the time they're away or they may come back for some seasonal planting and harvesting um, so that that's a big problem um, if we're, that's one of the arguments for to promoting development of the uh, provincial small and medium-sized cities where you don't have people who move a thousand miles away from the the, the parent grand grandparents raising their kids that uh, and again I, I you're, you're right the demographic change as you have this one-child policy work it's out way out in the next generation is going to present huge challenges and there are I'm sure there are his thinking and adaptations but any other yeah. I heard that um, they were going to move a factory out into the rural area and then the people there would all be you know the town would all be based upon this factory and then they wouldn't have to leave that area yeah, you have that, you know, that a lot of the the old Soviet-era factories were right in the middle of town. Uh, generally, they're moving out into the peri-urban areas and generally into industrial zones um, that are like uh, industrial parks, uh, again, different levels of scale and size, um, so that... For example, that town that I mentioned that was uh, Anting Newtown, which is a German-themed plant next to the Volkswagen town next to the Volkswagen plant, that's not a bad idea to build a town next to the factory where you and your wife and children and uh, in-laws can live and you can commute to work. Uh, but it hasn't worked that way in that case. You know, so the other thing, uh, well, there's great debate in China between what are they, Deng Xiaoping called them town and village enterprises, 
tried to set up village, small-scale industry. And th that had an uneven history and has been abandoned as a term and largely as a policy. But uh, the replacement is what are called small and medium-sized industries, so that you do have village industries in industrial parks uh, uh, in villages of a thousand people where people live and they look after their parents and they bicycle over to uh, work in, well, a mushroom factory in Zongki village that I visited as an example. They raised mushrooms in a big factory building. It wasn't a little. Um, what about um, kind of temporary planning or, you know, going back to your mention of these mistakes or missteps in these huge built cities? Um, what about um, kind of efforts to phase development so that you can kind of test um, test it out and yeah. then kind of build build on that or adjust the master plan to kind of suit the the habits that are forming in, in this new city? You know, that's another beautiful question. Yeah, great yeah. question. Yeah. And uh, of course, I, I mentioned this common pattern of pilot programs where you the national government wants something done. They don't know how to do it. So they set it out as a policy and then see what happens. And a bunch of cities try things. And the ones that fail fade out. And then the national leadership will seize on a couple as models and try to promote them. And that happens at the lower level as well. So that uh, Chengdu before they instituted various reforms, would have pilot programs, and then they'd see how they worked, and they would then expand them widely. What amazes me is the speed and the scale. Like, they'd have a pilot program to see about, um, uh, you know, reclassifying agricultural land that would last for nine months in one village, and then they decide as a result of that, oh, let's, that worked, let's do that for five, you know, 3,000 other villages simultaneously. So that uh, in working with these Chinese professors on the book, we're covering about a 10-year time period. And uh, they're writing things about the different phases. For two years they did this, and three years we did this, and two years they do that, which are sort of like blindingly quick changes, and they really are, phases uh, that astonish me and I try to eliminate some of the excess detail for Western readers but still it's things do move with experiments and phases and things that don't work get killed off uh, but it, it seems to me they j often go too fast and have problems like hmm. Um, I have two questions. Um, one is about um, Jakarta. What happens to the museum, that incredible museum in the middle of these horrible places? Got, Just, got me. I don't know. Okay. I visited Jakarta once in the suburbs with uh, okay. a colleague. Right. My so. next question is, what does Singapore look like? I've never been there, but uh, what does it look like now? What happened to all those gorgeous buildings? Sort of like Las, Las Vegas. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, so doesn't it? Down, doesn't it? There are some old uh, <laughs> historic buildings, but uh, 
I think uh, you know the 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 harbor main business area has gleaming forty-story glass and steel buildings and a casino and a thing like the London Eye and a Formula One racetrack and beautiful postmodern museums um, and everything's clean, clean and efficient and modern. Calls itself a garden city, so there are lots of flowers and lots of green. So is it like Singapore in any way? I'm sorry, we, I thought we were like talking about Singapore. Singapore in any way? Were you talking about Singapore? Oh, like uh, no, is is Shanghai? Oh, Shanghai. Like, Shanghai, you asked. I did ask about Shanghai. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry, I was talking about Singapore. I was talking about Singapore. No, I'm sorry. I asked about Jakarta, the museum, then, because you talked about Jakarta. Right. Okay, then I went. I meant to Shanghai. Shanghai. Did I, I say I Singapore? Yeah. Yeah. Singapore. Oh, I meant Shanghai. Oh, okay. Right. What I meant was, are those old, beautiful, gorgeous buildings still there, or has that been totally demolished? I have never been there. Yeah. So I don't know. Well, of course, you may be thinking of the, the, the Bund in Shanghai is very famous, which were European buildings built by the uh, occupying, you know, there was, there was a, the French and English. They're there, and they've been fixed up, so they're beautiful. beautiful, very nice. They, they, Shanghai had the largest World's Fair ever, you know, the Shanghai Expo two years or three years ago. They spent $47 billion. They spent more than they spent on the Beijing Olympics on the expo and fixing up Shanghai. And as part of that, all th these are buildings that look like uh, Paris, you know. Yes, I've seen photographs. Beautiful 19th century mm -hmm. bank buildings and commercial houses and opium trading companies. And, uh, are now all rehabbed and beautiful, and they redid the waterfront and increased the landscaping and spending a billion dollars on water pollution control for the area. So that that's all there. That's on one side. And then on the other side, you look over to this totally new Pudong area. Pukshi is on one side, and Pudong is the other side of the river. So it makes a wonderful contrast, the old and the new. I just want to give you a, a chance for any last reflection, anything I should have asked you and didn't, or any, any other reflection before we close. Well, I think this has been a great conversation, both mm -hmm. with your direction and all the good questions from the audience. I feel like I've, there's lots to say. We keep on going, <laughs> but that I've gotten through a lot of what I had hoped to convey. Um, so I'm happy to close it out. I've got some slides for the audience after that would the be podcast. Wonderful. No. And uh, I have nothing further to add. Great. So let's, let's show the slides. And thank you very much. Thank you.